Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia. I am managing partner of the Strategic Valuation and Advisory Services Practice, which brings clarity to the most important strategic decisions that business owners and executives face by presenting them with factual evidence for such decisions. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast. If you would like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. I also recently launched a new LinkedIn group called Unblakeable's Group That Doesn't Suck, so please join that as well if you would like to engage. Today's topic is, should I apply for grants? According to data from Foundation Center, there are over 86,000 grant-making entities in the United States, with 92% represented by independent foundations. According to the Instrumental blog, there are 26 grant-making agencies in the federal government and corporations represent 17% of all non-government grant funding, according to GrantStation. And uh, I wanted to cover this topic, and I wanted to cover this topic separately from the discussion that we had with Lauren Cassio a couple of weeks ago on non-dilutive funding, because I do believe that grant-making is its own animal. And, and in fact, um, I, I, don't, I don't know that most people appreciate just how big the grant sector is in the United States, and how central the grant-making sector is to supporting certain kinds of business, in particular uh, uh, biotechnology. Um, There's a rule of thumb that says it takes about $100 million to get from molecule to market. Um, And and a lot of that early-stage funding, when you're getting into, when you're in that molecule phase, and you're trying, and you're in that phase where you're you're not even sure that the molecule does anything useful yet. You're trying to prove that it, A, might do something useful and then determine if it's going to kill the person that you're trying to cure. That's what they call preclinical and phase one clinical trials. Um, uh, but you know, to get that point, to get to that point, that's usually not done through venture investing. Sometimes it is, but it's actually usually accomplished through some form of, of, of grants. And, and indeed, um, I think this, this is something that my profession and the, the world of corporate finance has to come to grips with and really, and really make an, a fundamental adjustment in how we value companies. And, and I'm going to get a little bit technical here on that because I think it's really important. And then we're going to get to the actual topic because you want to hear my guest, not me. But for those of you who are finance geeks out there, and I know that you're out there because you send me, you send me messages and emails. Um, uh, when we look at cost of capital for uh, to figure out the hurdle rate for a project or a discount rate on an investment or required rate of return, 
uh, conventional wisdom says that we, we consider the cost of equity and the cost of debt financing, which is all well and good, but, but conventional wisdom ignores non-dilutive financing. That is financing that has no cost of capital. There is no expectation that it's going to generate a financial return to the investor. And accordingly, I think that leads to a lot of companies, frankly, being undervalued, at least by people who do what I do, and explains, at least in part, some of the, the gap that exists between sort of academic finance and practical finance. So uh, I'm, I'll put out a white paper on that. I'm not going discuss, to discuss that anymore because it, it really would make for a lousy podcast. So let's go to the part that makes for a good podcast. And joining us today is Jill Wood, who co-founded Jonas Just Begun Foundation to Cure San Filippo with her husband in May of 2010. After their son Jonah was diagnosed with the ultra-rare genetic disease, San, San Filippo Syndrome Type C. Their mission was to foster a treatment for San Filippo Syndrome Type C by connecting researchers, funding science, and mobilizing the patient population. Their revenue came through grassroots fundraising efforts, small grants, and private donors. Funding was then distributed to researchers through grants made by the foundation. Grassroots fund, uh, fundraising provided the seed money to initiate preclinical research, but was far from what was needed to develop, test, and manufacture a drug. So Jill then founded Phoenix Nest, a for-profit bespoke biotech in 2012. Phoenix Nest licensed the programs that the foundation kickstarted, which allowed them to apply for National Institute of Health Small Business Innovation Research grants. They won their first SBIR grant in 2012, the start of a series of grants totaling uh, nearly $11 million. That funding has allowed Phoenix Nest to bring one of its treatments almost entirely through its, uh, its preclinical studies and have funded a clinical observation study, which is still ongoing. Jill Wood, welcome to the Decision Vision podcast. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me here. So let's educate our audience first. We'll talk about grants in a second, but what you do is, is so important. Uh, and I also want to get into your origin story because I think it's, I think it's just amazing, candidly. And I'm not, I'm not sucking up to you. I truly believe that. Um, what is San Filippo syndrome? Until you and I had spoken, I'd never heard of it, to be perfectly candid. Yeah, very um, few people have heard of it. And that's one of the major problems um, with diagnosing this disease. So San Filippo syndrome is part of the umbrella group of syndromes called mucopolysaccharidosis, which is MPS for short. There are seven forms of um, MPS and San Filippo syndrome is MPS3, which breaks down to another four syndromes, uh, MPS3, A, B, C, and D, or you can call it San Filippo syndrome, A, B, C, and D. I don't know why they have to make this stuff so complicated, but that's what it is. Um, so my son, Jonah, was diagnosed with San Filippo syndrome type C about a year into his first year of life. Um, we were really very lucky, if you, for lack of better words, that we live in New York, where we are surrounded by some really great institution, healthcare, um, hospitals, who are pediatrician recognized that something was off with Jonah and it was basically the head size, his head circumference, which a normal pediatrician would, you know, sweep under the rug, like no big deal. You know, if they're Polish, they all have big heads, you know, but he's, he sent us over to um, 
a neurologist and that uh, neurologist took a hard look at Jonah and saw some other things. And they sent us to an MRI that was done at NYU. And luckily for us, those guys at the um, text saw in Jonah's brain um, deformities or lesions. The deformity was a skull deformity um, that's pointed towards mu mucopolysaccharidosis. So we were able to zero in right away into um, what diagnostic testing we needed to do for Jonah. Um, so San Filippo syndrome, it's, caused, it's a genetic disease that um, has a mutation on one of the chromosomes. And it's, you know, a husband and wife need to have a 25% chance of giving both of those bad genes to their child. Um, and so Jonah has, has a defect on his gene that stops a um, enzyme from forming. And that enzyme's job is to break down a protein called heparin sulfate. And because that enzyme is not there or lacking, um, it doesn't break down that protein and the protein sits in the cell in every single cell. Um, this is called a lysosomal storage disease. There are numerous lysosomal storage disease out there. Gaucher, Fabre, um, are some of the more popular ones that people might recognize. So anyways, you could imagine what this storage must do to your cells that's not supposed to be there, right? It has catastrophic effects. Um, it starts with um, near-degenerative progressive disease, a lot of behavioral issues. Um, the symptoms are, are really quite... Um, diverse. And it's very hard to pick up because a lot of it in the early diagnosis is hyperactivity. So you have a two-year-old that's extremely hyper, a two-year-old with a large head that's extremely hyper. Then it gets, what really presents, sets people off to search is their um, speech delays and not keeping up with their peers. A lot of times people, you know, if they have older brother or siblings, they're like, they're just not like his older brother, Johnny, you know, this is not the way his, he developed. And so then they are, um, they start on that odyssey of getting a diagnosis and they usually get diagnosed as um, in the autism spectrum disorders until they start regressing. And then the regression, they'll start to lose their speech, their ability to walk, their ability to eat on their own. And they succumb to death between the ages of 10 to 30, really, um, depending on the severity of the syndrome. So when, when at, at the time your son was diagnosed, were you, were you already a biologist? Were you already a trained pharmaceutical researcher? What was your background? I know. It's, um, everybody always asks me that, Mike. They call us citizen scientists is the term that came yeah. up. And no, I was in the fashion industry. Um, I think, you know, what gave me the ability to do what I've done is being just um, being able to talk to people, not being shy, and it's okay to not understand um, and going after people and making those connections. That's what, one of my strong suits. You know, and, and I think just aside from the, the, the story being remarkable that you're undertaking that challenge and you really, you really just pivoted your life to pursue this. 
um, you've gone from that point to raising over $11 million of grant money, right? Which, which tells me that, and I mean, this is no disrespect to you to in, in any way diminish your, your accomplishment, but it, do, it does say that, that you don't necessarily have to be a quote insider to raise grant money. You don't have necessarily have to have lived that entire life. You're part of a secret club or anything that there is a process that, that if you master that process, then grant money is, is achievable. Yeah. Um, but Mike, I do think they were shocked. I think that the people that released the funds, when they talked to me that first round and they asked me, you know, who I was and what kind of um, setup financial setup I had, they were, they were shocked. <laughs> I could hear them gasp on the other line. So I don't know that you've actually, there, I, I would be curious to know how many other parents have started out. And since I've started doing this and telling my story, you know, the NIH brings me out all the time to campus to um, speak. And since I've started this, uh, many families, many parents said, okay, I can do this too. So I know there have, there's been an uptick in that, but I would be curious to know. So walk through, walk through your first grant, if you can remember that, um, what, what was that like? How did you approach it? Was it successful? Um, you know, it took a couple times, a couple rounds to have our first successful grant. Um, obviously, I did not do this to grant writing on my own. You do need to have a medical degree or a PhD. Actually, you don't. I mean, you could really educate yourself up to that point. But if you want to expedite the situation, you should probably bring some consultants in. And so I did have a, um, my colleague, my co-founder was a PhD and he had NIH grants under his belt. Um, he inspired me and said, let's do this. I have really great researchers that I work with. We had preclinical work, we had efficacy, and we really had what was needed to start writing grants. So he helped me put together our first grant application and to, do, to go back to do, so my major funding comes from the National Institute of Health, NINDS, as I mentioned, the Small Business Innovation Research Grants. To get these fundings, um, to start up, even able to apply, is a major undertaking. You can't just go and log in and sign yourself up. There are several different agencies that you have to go through, um, different the Dunn's number, your cage code, all these, all these steps that you have to go and um, be um, certified for. And so anyways, that could take you four to six months. So if you're going to do this, you got to get started. Um, I, there's very little cost that's involved in starting up, though. I think there might just be a couple of fees, but anyhow, it's inexpensive to do. So yeah. go ahead. Please go ahead. No, go ahead, please. Okay. So um, my researchers, you have to, you know, with these small business grants, you usually it's a requirement. You're working with an academic, with an academic um, and that academic worked with my grant writer and we together, we put together a strategy. There is a format to these grants and I suggest you read the instructions over and over and over again. And <laughs> you don't throw anything in there that you think is, is, you know, 
really great. You need to follow what the, um, the FOA asks you to do. Um, you're FOA gonna, stands for what? Um, you put me on the spot there and you're going to, oh. you're going to come out. It's a, we'll look it up. Yeah. Thanks. Look it up. Um, uh, you call, you could say call for grant, um, FOA. A uh, funding opportunity announcement. Thank you. There it is. See, you're, you're such an expert. You're so in it. You can't even. You, it's hard for you to come back to the the dummy one with me. I was <laughs> impressed that I came up with SBIR. Okay. Um, so, anyways, you follow what the FOA is is asking, and if you don't, that is your first rejection. They'll they'll kick it right back at you. The NIH is not messing around. I once had a grant kicked back to me because there was a hyperlink in, in, the, um, in the page within the, the body of a CV. Um, that was kicked back to me. I've had grants kicked back because we went over the page limit. I mean, you don't even get reviewed. They kick it back and you can't reapply for another six months. Mm. So you really got to take these things very, very seriously. Have other people take another eyeball on it. Pass it over. I mean, biosketches have to be in the form of an NIH biosketch. Um, anyhow, so our first grants, we went, applied, had really great comments. We did not win. We did not win, but you take those comments and you take them seriously and you go back and you address them and you could have a chance to, uh, if, if they're within time, you can go and address those before your grant will go to committee for final review. But most often you have to reapply, do the um, grant funding opportunities, which ha usually happen every six months. So, you know, in, in, now you've also, you've also received other grants from, from non-governmental organizations as well, correct? Correct. So I guess I'm curious, why why are they giving away money, right? I understand, and our, our listeners will understand why are why do government aid that in a way that's sort of their job, right? Yeah. Um, but you know, there are these private foundations, individuals, I guess, you know, corporate entities and so forth. What do you think kind of makes them tick? You know, a lot of them are, you know, the obviously breast cancer awareness. You can see how that got stuck, got started. Right. Um because it affected people, right? And it maybe affected love, loved ones. A wealthy entrepreneur out there may have had a grandchild with a rare disease and somebody on a staff started up a foundation because um, they want to help. And maybe they don't have the time or the resources to, to do what I've done. And honestly, I, I'm sorry, I keep regressing here, but you know, I'm thinking back to the science, what was what was there ten years ago, is not is here now, you know. So a lot of Alzheimer's is a really good example, you know. It's like that is a disease that's only recently had treatments, and it's been known for at seventy years. I'm you can look that one up, Mike, as well. Um, but some of these ultra rare diseases are easy fixes, where a single gene defect. And the science is finally here. You know, CRISPR gene therapy, it's just opened up the world to us. Mm -hmm. so I, I want to say, you know, I'm 
going back to make my point is that these large foundations that have been there for so long, they had to fund a lot of science to get to where they're at now. Um, I think we're going to be seeing a lot more treatments coming out in the next couple of decades with the recent discoveries that we've had. So, yes, I think they have a connection. They have a connection to the community. So I'm not sure if the way to ask this question, have you think back or maybe just if you're going to start today, but you know, I'm, I'm sure somebody who's listening to this podcast is thinking to themselves, you know, I've been thinking about getting a grant and, and, you know, this conversation with Jill is giving me the confidence to give this a shot. Where do you start? How do you start figuring out what might, what, what might be a, a potential source of grant money? Um, well, you're going to want to look at the, the institutions or the smaller nonprofits that are in your space. And the NIH was obvious to me, but, you know, if you might have a education um, grants, you can do, go for the Department of Education. Department of Defense is a really good, huge funding opportunity. Um, so look within your space. Yeah, and, and you, you brought, uh, I imagine a lot of this can be just accomplished by a Google search, right? Because I think a lot of these, some organizations are very private. And they don't necessarily want a solicitation at large, but then there are some that do, right? So um, one thing I've read, and I'm curious if you agree with or have any experience with this, is that it might be easier to obtain money from a smaller organization than a larger one, simply because they may not have as many applicants. Yeah, any comment on that? Friends, Mike, finding those Finding those is, is pretty dang tough, you know, and it depends. It's like, okay, so we can go on on tangent here. Maybe there's foundations. So in my space, you'll have a foundation that supports MPS, but they support MPS as in um, the families getting help to the families and getting families to where they need to be. And I'm looking for foundations that are willing to fund research, you know, to bring a truth treatment um yeah the smaller ones are hard are hard i think to find unless you know them because they're in your space and then you have a link to them but yeah the larger foundations you know everybody always says did you go for a zuckerberg grant (laughs) you know have you talked to bill gates it's always the first thing off of people's out of people's mouths and it's like those are the people that are inundated with grant applications you know you really need to have an in. You need to have somebody you can talk to, a name, and ask for advice. What are people looking for? What's the tone of this grant? And a lot of times you'll look at these app, the, um, the FOAs, and it's like, I don't even know. They're so all over the place. You know, nothing is really zeroed in. And there's so many different ones. It's really convoluted. So, like, I... You know, you start out doing that because that's what everybody tells you to do. But I turned around and just walked away from it because it was just, it was all misses. You know, you could spend a lot of time putting things together and it's just not what they're looking for, but they don't really tell you what they're looking for. And the goalposts are changing all the time, whichever way the wind blows, you know, what's, what's, what's the sexy right here that I'm funding, you know? 
You know, the interesting thing about what you just described, I think, is that a lot of people who have had to raise venture capital would offer a very similar description, right? You've got to have an in, and you're not really sure what they want. The VCs aren't sure what they want. It's sort of like trying to define the difference between art and pornography. They don't know. They can't define exactly where it is, but they know it when they see it, Yeah. right? And so... You get bounced around saying, well, no, I'm really not into this. But, you know, maybe if you do this, I'll take another look. And um, I I don't know about you, but I know that at least on the VC side, on the the funding seeker side, that can just be immensely frustrating. Yeah. Because it's hard to tell the difference between, between being tasked to do something with a specific objective versus just sort of being, frankly, jerked around. Yep, exactly. Yep. So in, in your experience, what, what does the timeline look like for applying to a grant? Uh, I'm, I'm curious, is it, is it fairly quick? Is it lengthy? Is it variable? What, what's your experience with that? It's all lengthy. From small to large, it, it's all lengthy. I mean, small operations don't have as many people on board looking at it. They want to vet the application. So it might take more time to find the, the right um, eyes to look at the application. And then large institutions, you think they're large, but the NIH, I feel like they don't have enough employees. The FDA, they don't have enough employees. And there's a lot to go through as well. So those could take they're about six months rotation. And if you have a uh, government shutdown, it's all over. (laughs) And it happens all the time. When that happens, do you basically have to start over or do they suspend an animation? We just sit in limbo. We sit in limbo. You know, it's happened to me a couple of times during the Obama administration, you know, where we just towards the end had shutdowns every other day. And, um, it was between like we had won the grant and now we're waiting for the funds to release. Well, the, the funds aren't being released because nobody's made their decision on how much funds are being released. They're all squabbling there. So yeah, you sit down for another three months. It's, it's extremely frustrating. This is not for the, I mean, you think you got the funds, but it could take you a year to actually get them. I, and I should preface that too. You, and maybe this is obvious to most people, but maybe not. Those funds don't hit your bank account, right? They're sitting up there in, in, in a cloud somewhere, call it the payment management system. And you only pull down funds when you're paying an invoice. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. I, you know, I, I didn't know that now, but our listeners didn't know that. Yeah. And how, how does that, how does that impact your operations as you, you know, try to ma- operate your company? So, I mean, you just, and that's, okay. (laughs) Yeah. It's Mike, it's really hard. I'm just laughing. I could tell you all the horror, all the horror stories behind this. So, you you know, you have to budget. So fine tune, you know, you need to know every penny. And when those invoices are coming, um, you're a lot of these grants are milestone driven. If you don't hit your, um, milestones, your grants can be frozen. If you have a um, a researcher that changes positions or you have to move to a different site, your grant is frozen. And if you're in between a funding cycle and they only release fundings at, at certain points, 
you could be sitting, you know, it's frozen. Then you have to get permission to release it. And then here the funds come another six months. So you can't get ahead of yourself. You can't ever overcommit. You really need to be prepared for those um, things that happen because it is an inevitable. They will happen. And if you are living from um, paycheck to paycheck, it can crush you. And I'm, I'm guessing also you, it probably creates a, a vendor management challenge too. It's, it is. Yep. I always go in and, you know, and this also, a lot of these vendors, it, believe it or not, even though the money's there, they don't take on uber rare projects. You know, it's like a million dollars actually means nothing to them. Yeah. You know, a patient population with 15 patients, they, they've, I've had vendors that have turned me down because my projects are too small. Hmm. Right. So, um, you, you get these good ones that want to work with you that understand the situation and they realize this is what's happening, but we're going to do the right thing. And I've had several of those vendors, but yeah, I worked with one company that has been incredibly patient where that exact same thing happened. My grant got, uh, waylaid and I owed them hundreds of thousands of dollars and they sat there for six months before and they continued to work. They kept on working until the funds were released, but I, I couldn't sleep at night. I do not like living like this. No, of course. Now I guess on the, on the, on the bright side, I have to imagine if you provide those services, you, if you provide those services or vendors provide, you know, for, you know, for example, uh, clinical research organizations, that kind of thing, many of their clients are in your position, right? And so my guess, if they're smart, is that their, their, their business model already foresees the fact that there may be a, there may be a six month delay between invoicing and being paid uh, simply because that's the nature of the beast. Yep. It's like the venture capitalists, you know, it's like they're almost, they're taking a little bit of a risk helping you out. So, so, um, let's go to the NA, get to the NIH. Cause I think, uh, that's obviously a, a, a big source for you. Uh, how important has it been to develop a relate, a personal relationship with people at the NIH and, and how did, if so, if that was important, how did that happen? Um, you know, they have to be very careful. There cannot be any favoritism there. You know, yep. you can't take these guys out for lunch or buy them a drink. That is, you know, not, not appropriate. But when you're in this space and, you know, it's, it's a small fishbowl. And um, I was fortunate enough where my, my grant funding came from the NINDS. And there's a representative, our um, program manager that runs in the same circle. Her name's actually the same as mine, um, who I just got to know her and she really understood the science. She understood the disease. And so when the grant application came through, it hit her desk. We already had the rapport. She knew the people that I worked with, um, but she's not the one who's making the decisions on reviews. You know, when your grant goes in, she gives it to the right people, but those grant you never see your reviewers. You they give you a list of their names, but you actually don't know which ones are looking at your grant. And it is a major no no to ever contact 
these review these reviewers ever say anything to them and it's those guys that are making the decisions on what giving you the score and those guys can tear you apart if they have their idea does not fit with yours um but the grant managers how they can really help you is fight for you when they do see something that is not um in sync with the guidelines they can call a reviewer out and say hey you know this was an unjust comment um they help you during those times when grant funding freezes were at they can help you find other ways to get bridge funding so i the my program managers are priceless i do have a really great relationship with them um and they are extremely helpful in networking and giving ideas so you've um indicated that you've in the past and perhaps you still do have relied on the help of outside consultants and advisors to help you prepare grants and i've i've read the same thing like many many organizations have internal grant writers because it's such a a specialized skill um you know if you're going to apply for a grant such as the ones that you've received how much should somebody budget in terms of the cost of applying for this quote quote free money which isn't so free it's not free um oh geez you know i i think it could probably cost you i mean it depends like are you going to hire these people and keep them on staff you know the more that they under that's where i always worry about they need to under not only have the gift of writing they need to understand your disease too right and so um it's hard to find a consultant out there that's going to be able to nail both of them so i would i would suggest hiring somebody and then you're going to give them a full salary you know which you want to google it you know 100,000 to 300,000 if you were going to piecemeal it i just think you get what you pay for you're not going to get quality work out of the maybe you will maybe you can find somebody but just you know asking saying here's my package put it together um i would say that probably cost you at least $10,000 have you have you had grant applications rejected Oh, all the time, nonstop. This, uh, <laughs> this, this one grant, I'm sitting. It goes to cancel May 18th, and we are sitting on the edge of our seats. We got a really great score, and um, that grant has gone through three times. This is its fourth time. Its fourth time being submitted. Fourth time being submitted. And you're you're hopeful that the fourth time is the charm. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, so the, actually, this is my, my, one of my questions. I was curious if you're able to apply for grants more than once. That sounds like you are. That may even be expected. Yeah. Yep. So you'll get your comments. And, you know, you're not always going to have the same reviewers. And sometimes you get lucky with a reviewer that knows exactly what it is that you're trying to convey and get across. They've been in this space. And then you're going to have they're in your space. These people are in your space. They have understanding of the disease. And then you'll have somebody who's like, uh, "No, that is not the route of administration. I would suggest no." F, <laughs> you know, they score you from like one to eight, you know, and you're one being good, eight all the way across. Um, so it's some egos in there. So, 
is it is it fair to say there's a certain amount of luck involved? Got to get the right application in front of the right reviewer on the right day in the right mood. Yep. I think so. <laughs> Honestly, Mike, okay. yes. Because, you know, we've resubmitted it and gotten, you know, a different, way different comments from the previous round, you know. Yeah, so it's extremely frustrating. Um, now, when you when you receive a grant, we touched upon this in terms of how money is dispersed. But but what other things do you have to change about your business or build your business around in order to manage the grant? Because my understanding is when there's a grant, there's, there's usually some sort of reporting function to verify to send to the granting organization to verify basically that you took the money, you didn't go to Atlantic City and yep. put it all on 22 black, right? So yep. um, what does that look like? Um, it's hard. And it was that was really um scary for me. And I found there's niche companies out there that, um, that specialize and managing your funds and helping you with the accounting, everything. Yes. There'll be line item budgets for, you know, travel for equipment for subcontracts, yada, yada. And you get your F and a portion of it and your feed. There's a lot of calculation that goes into these. Um, it's, it's epic. It's, it's a, quite a lot of work um, and your invoices all need to be properly coded. So all that goes into, um, I use this, I use this company and I'll pitch them because I think they're fam- fa- fabulous. Jameson um, is my company that does that for me, but I take the invoices and I code them. They manage all the back end of it for me. And then when you hit a, um, a milestone, it's 750,000 in, in, um, in funding, you're audited, it triggers an audit. And mm-hmm. so these guys come in, you know, they're certified by the NIH, and they come in and they look at all your books, and make sure you're spending, you know, down to the time cards to the, you know, the um, every single sub award want to see the contracts, knowing if you how you vetted these different contracts, it, it's pretty intense, and it's extremely intimidating. So I strongly suggest you bring somebody in to help you with that. You know, academia who wins a lot of these kind of grants, they have entire departments that manage this, you know, they manage the researchers grants for them, but I did not. And so I, uh, I found a company that did could manage it for me. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious, does that also mean that you have to, I'm guessing I'm guessing that means that you also have to uh, kind of approach accounting in a separate and kind of a different way. You know, some some companies, frankly, can be pretty loosey goosey about accounting. And, you know, if all you're doing is you're running a business selling peat moss out of the back of your truck, you can do that. But it sounds like for you, you know, you, you probably effectively need at least a controller, yeah. if not an outright CFO and and maybe even a whole separate kind of firm even to self audit right? To, to make sure that you're, you're doing what you need to do. Cause I'm, I'm guessing what, you know, that's the kind of thing where a misstep can destroy a relationship forever. Yep. 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 So that, yeah, that's why I depend on this count, this company. And that is, I really want to make sure this, this was a portion that I did not know this behind, there's always that behind the scenes stuff. And this was one of them is the reporting of the funds how you spend the funds. I mean, there's, 
there's stipulations on how much funds you can roll over to the next accounting period. If you, you know, you come up short and once in one budget item and over in the other one, how much you can reallocate to different um, areas, you know, it's, it's really detailed. I'm talking with Jill Wood and the topic is, should I apply for grants? Um, yeah, the time we have left, one, one question I want to, I want to, get your thought thoughts on here is who shouldn't apply for grants, right? I'm sure you've probably talked to people that have, have, have asked, you know, Hey, this sounds great. I want to get some of this free money to do X, Y, and Z. Have you ever talked somebody out of applying for grants or can you see a scenario under which you might talk somebody out of applying for grants? Cause for whatever reason, they're just not, they're not wired for it. They're not appropriate, not the right space. You know, hopefully you get my question there. Uh, yeah, and I would say not in the right space. This is not free money <laughs> because free means it's my time. This is a massive amount of work that you're doing to managing these grants. So if you think you're going to get free money, who's going to manage that money for you? That's not that's not free. So it would be the person that I would talk out of it, you know, like, I know where I'm at and I only have one child. I live in New York. I have access to a um, large infrastructure, lots of consultants at my fingertips. I would say, you know, to the um, mom and dad and um, I I don't want to pick on anybody, but Arkansas um, who did not have the, the infrastructure that I do and have more than one child, four kids, maybe two very sick. It's just, it's too much. It's too much work. I know how hard it is. And you're not just managing grants. You're also managing your research. You're managing the companies. You're managing your vendors. You're trying to understand where to go to next, the NIH, the whole landscape. You have to quit your job. And if you're taking care of multiple sick children, it's it's too much. I ask myself all the time: is it is it worth it? And and yeah, I, I imagine it must feel sometimes like you're working for your granting organizations. Yeah, I do. I I really do. I would say that's a good portion of my um, my time is to make sure you know all my books are in order, that I'm making all my milestones. You know planning ahead so that I, I'll get the funding when the fun, when my milestones are met. Yeah. It's a, a lot of juggling. So uh, one way to potentially approach applying for grants is to basically put out as many applications as you possibly can, sort of a shotgun approach, right? <laughs> as opposed to being surgical. I think I already know what the answer is going to be, but that's okay. Um, but I'm sure somebody's tried that. Is is that a viable strategy, or do you really have to be zeroed in and, and decide and bet on your organizations? If you have nothing better to do, if you have nothing nothing else to lose, you could sit around and write. I mean, some of these grants are small, but some of them are you know thirty pages, and you're also wasting other people's time. If you're not serious about your grant writing. You're wasting other people's times because you have to go and get quotes from all your all your CROs, 
Um, maybe you need to rent a space. Maybe you need to hire other people. You have to get letters of support. Uh, there's a lot that goes into this. So I would that would make me mad if you did that because you are wasting a lot of people's time and you are wasting time on reviewers precious time by putting something in their face that's just worthless so i be focused um what are the most common reasons that a, that a grant is rejected in your mind uh, mistake yeah yep just like a factual error oh, or i i know a mistake a hyperlink too many pages. You, okay. didn't follow, you didn't follow the format. This was supposed to be 10 pages, you know, or in the mistake that you, you missed the concept, the S the FOA, like you misunderstood it. You should really talk to the um, grant managers before you apply and say, are my aims, does this fall under what you are, um, ex what the reviewers are expecting? Jill, we're, we're running out. We're running out of time, and you know there are probably questions that um, uh, our listeners would have liked me to have asked, but didn't, or would have liked us to spend more time on, or maybe they just want to find out more about San Filippo syndrome and how they can help. Um, if somebody would like to contact you, can they? And if so, what's the best way to do that? Um, you can contact me directly at my email address. If you have a place to put that, it's. Um, in the blog text or in the, in your text somewhere under my bio, it's jwood at phoenixnestbiotech.com. Very good. That's going to wrap it up for today's program. And I'd like to thank Jill Wood so much for sharing her expertise with us. We'll be exploring a new topic each week. So please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your, with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. If you would like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. Also check out my new LinkedIn group called Unblakeable's Group That Doesn't Suck. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Bradyware and Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast. <laughs>